Welcome back to the Victor E. History Podcast from the History Program at Fort Hayes State University. Here at Victor E. History, we highlight student and faculty research and notable alumni. I'm Holly Marquis. I'm a lecturer in the History Program, and I'm your host. I'm joined today by Larry Zimmerman, a grad student at Fort Hayes, and he's here to talk with me about the German genocide of the Herero. Larry, welcome back to Victor E. Hi, thanks for having me. It's great to be back. So you've been on the podcast before, so I won't ask you to repeat any of that information. Hopefully everybody has already listened to your episode on Lucy Parsons. If they have not, I will say now that I can recommend they go learn about this stabby anarchist lady uh, from back in season one. So since then, since season one, what's new with you? Well, since then, I've graduated. Uh, This is my first semester of being a graduate history student. I also went on uh, the study abroad trip to Poland that you and Dr. Nickel um, led, and I believe you had some other students on to talk about that. Yeah, that was an excellent trip. I hope you're still around to go on the next trip that we have coming up in 2026. You're a grad student now, uh, but this paper was from last semester, so your last big research paper of your undergrad, right? Yes, this was uh, for my German history class that I took with Dr. Nickel last year. And what drew you to Um, the topic of the Herero genocide? I've been interested in uh, genocide studies since that class I took involving uh, Jewish life in Eastern Europe and the Holocaust. Um, I was also interested in Germany's colonial holdings since that's one country that we don't hear much about the colonial history um, involving the country. Um, those two factors kind of drew me towards reaching, uh, researching the Namibian genocide, and then I just picked the Herero out of the two groups um, that were subjected to genocides there. Yeah, you're not writing book-length research papers, so you have to <laughs> you have to make some choices here. And I suppose before we talk about the Herero, we need to define genocide. Can you do that for me? Yes, so this is actually somewhat of a controversial topic because there are multiple definitions that are used. Um, The only internationally accepted legal definition that is um, the one that was decided by the 1948 UN Convention on Genocide defined it as acts committed with intent to destroy in whole or in part a national, ethnic, racial, or religious group. Um, There's also a definition of genocide used by historians and genocide scholars, which is harder to easily state, but includes an emphasis on the acts of destruction or intended destruction of a culture being genocidal acts, as well as um, just killing of a group. This definition of genocide also recognizes the inherently colonial nature of genocide. So the Herero genocide is is definitely lesser known. So I want you to set up some context for us, for those out there who aren't as familiar. Uh, how does this get its start in 1904? We will be talking about the country of Namibia, which is directly northwest of South Africa. Um, it was known as German Southwest Africa from the 1880s until 1915. It started as a corporate colony, but was later taken over by the German government directly. Um, Namibia contained many many tribes and groups when the Germans first colonized it, the largest two of which were the Herero and the Nama, both of which were loose confederations made up of multiple tribes. 
The Herero had willingly signed over and sold large tracts of their land to Germans and had shown themselves as largely willing to continue doing so, while the Nama had been more resistant and had fought the Germans on multiple occasions prior to 1904. Um, the German governor at, uh, in 1904 was a man named Major Theodore Lutwein. Um, he passed a law limiting the amount of Herrera land available for sale, which artificially increased the competition between German settlers and Herrero. The Germans also uh, declared a policy of confiscating any Herrero cattle that wandered onto the land that the Germans claimed, which was a problem because that land had been Herrero grazing land shortly before that. So the cattle were just trained to go onto that land. So right. cattle aren't going to understand of... the boundaries. <laughs> Exactly. So that ended, led to a lot of Herrero being branded as cattle thieves, which led to them being executed, sentenced to prison, or having even more of their cattle confiscated, which, of course, increased uh, tensions between the two groups. So it starts out as land disputes and stolen cattle, but initially, are there attempts at peace negotiations? Yeah, so um, after the initial uh, conflict broke out in 1904, the group of German Marines began moving into Herrero villages, and um, the Herrero began to gather together and make preparations for war under their leader, who was a man named Samuel Maharero. Maharero and uh, Luthwein wrote back and forth between each other several times, and uh, we have those letters. They um, initially discussed what some of the causes for the war they both believed were, and then what they both uh, initially seemed to want peace. But after that initial communication, the Berlin uh, government ordered Ludwig to cease all negotiations with the Herrero and to engage them in an offensive, um, which he then did. What did you notice about the negotiations that led you to describe the Germans as prepared to annihilate the Herrero? To begin with, those uh, Marines that initially moved into the uh, Herrero villages, Ludwig had given them orders to kill men, women, and children. Um, we know this from their diaries. So I do not believe he was a man that actually cared about peace. How he more, I think, um, was approaching this as a typical colonial war where his goal was to gain farther land and um, civil rights concessions from the natives, whereas Berlin signaled to end all negotiations. And that can be seen as a sign that they planned for this to be a war of annihilation. He initially engaged them in battle for four days before the Herrero um, attempted to withdraw. Um, the Germans and the Herrero then fought several smaller battles over the next few weeks until in late July, Lutwein uh, trapped the Herrero and surrounded them in a place that the Germans knew as Waterberg and the Herrero knew as Hamakari. Lutwein um, received a notice that he was about to be replaced at this point, and so he decided to ignore his orders to not negotiate, and he attempted um, a final negotiation with Samuel Maharero. This still wasn't a lenient negotiation at all. He told um, the Herrero that um, if they surrendered and agreed to let him execute all Herrero that had attacked Germans or German property, then he would allow them to surrender. The Herrero rejected this 
And um, even despite them rejecting that, Berlin was still very angry at Lutwein and sent him like an official chastisement for even just offering them a chance of surrender. They were determined to carry out this war till the end. Yeah, being chastised for offering a chance to surrender, but also like looping in children, there's no reason to be killing children. That, that really links that annihilation. Um, you mentioned Waterberg. Tell me about the Battle of Waterberg and what happens after. Yeah, so at this point, Lutwein's replacement, who was a man named Lieutenant General Lothar von Trotha, arrived. Um, he had been personally selected by the Kaiser to take over because he had a record of brutally commanding German troops during the Boxer Rebellion. Von Trotha constantly wrote and spoke dehumanizing propaganda about the Herero, and he had determined even before he got to Namibia that he was going to murder the entire group. Trotha initiated the Battle of Waterberg on August 11th, 1904. Uh, the Germans were victorious and pushed the Herero out of the town. After defeating the Herero in battle, the German troops chased the fleeing Herero into the Kalahari Desert. The Germans pursued the Herero farther and farther into the desert, chasing them from one dry watering hole to another. Um, Trotha then deployed his forces in a cordon around the edge of the desert um, and had other ones under a man named uh, Commander Ludwig von Estorf who he uh, ordered them to block the Herero from fleeing to the south. Um, all of this together caused hundreds to thousands of the survivors of the Battle of uh, Waterberg to die of dehydration or heat exposure. Anybody who was separated off from the main Herero group was likely to be apprehended by the Germans, which thanks to a new order by Trotha, they would be shot on sight, whether they were a man, a woman, or a child. Uh, one major described the orders that Trotha gave them. Um, he said, this dealt with the extermination of a whole tribe. Nothing living was to be spared. That included the Herero cattle, who the Germans shot thousands of um, in order to deprive the Herero of food. Trotha, by the way, is the image that we're using for this podcast. So if anyone was wondering who that was with creepy eyes, this is Trotha. I had you define genocide earlier, right? So this meets several of those points, correct? Yes. Uh, UN definition of genocide goes on to list uh, several acts, and this meets pretty much all of the ones that they list. It also very much um, fits the scholarly definition of genocide that I was talking about because the Germans were not only trying to murder all of the Herero, but also were trying to destroy their culture and their way of life. In your paper, you discuss the writing after the conflict by one of the commanders that reflects on these actions. How does this commander's writing illuminate more information about the German approach to the Herero? Yes, yeah, so that was um, Commander Estorf. Uh, his writing gives us more of an insight into Trotha's uh, motivations and the conflict that occurred among the German officers as to um, whether they should approach this as a typical colonial war or a full-on genocidal war. Um, Estorf wrote that he believed the German actions in the desert were senseless violence and that he believed that they should pardon the tribes in exchange for confiscating all of the tribe's land and the cattle. 
but he wrote that they didn't do this because Trotha, quote, wanted their total extermination. Trotha's writing himself gave further insight into this debate. He wrote that he did not believe the argument that the Herrera were, quote, necessary labor material, and that since, quote, the N-word does not respect treaties, but only brutal force, end quote, the Germans' only option was to, quote, the nation as such should be annihilated or expelled from the country. Um, as is obvious, this is a uh, very dehumanizing language, speaking of people as labor material, and also just saying that because of their skin color, they are not able to respect treaties and should be annihilated. Um, this is fairly typical language for a military commander who is carrying out a genocide. You bring up an excellent point. The rhetoric here is dehumanizing, and that's obviously a common element of genocides. You also bring up that Namibia was the first genocide perpetrated by Imperial Germany, but it wasn't the first time that German officials supported this kind of rhetoric. So could you unpack that a little bit? Yes. So um, I mentioned earlier that uh, Trotha had been the German commander during the Boxer Rebellion, that was in 1900 um, when the Boxer Rebellion began. Kaiser Wilhelm II, the same Kaiser as during the Namibian genocide, um, he took the rebellion as a personal insult against him um, because he saw the Chinese as a people who were too racially inferior to oppose European will. And um, on July 27th, he gave a famous speech known as the Hun Speech in which he ordered German soldiers to treat the rebelling Chinese with no mercy and, um, and used similar dehumanizing language about the Chinese. Um, in 1904, when the Herrera War began, um, the Kaiser also took that as a personal insult against himself and um, used similar language when speaking about it. And um, this was all to, again, as with the Hun speech, this was to motivate his colonial troops about the importance of restoring the racial hierarchy in the colonies. Yeah, and earlier you had brought up uh, Trotha's order. So in October of 1904, there's this order to kill Herrero men, women, and children on site. What's going on there? So this is the point in the war where um, whether or not you consider it one before at this point, it is on October 2nd, 1904, it is an officially ordered and sanctioned genocide. Um, on this day, he ordered that all Herrero people must leave German colonial borders and that any who are seen must be shot on sight by German troops or driven back into the desert to die of start, uh, dehydration. To get word out about this, Trotha ordered the hanging of 30 Herrero prisoners and distributed copies of the order amongst the rest and then released them, telling them to carry the proclamation to the surviving Herrero out in the Kalahari. This was an uh, attempt, this order um, was an attempt to get the Herrero to cross the Kalahari and um, try to get to the British-held territory to the south. Um, some groups did manage to do that, and um, even though it was an almost lethal, like certainly lethal journey, some of them did manage to make that crossing, but many more died attempting it or were shot um, because they refused to cry. This proclamation is also where Trotha famously refers to himself as the great general of the Kaiser. 
So there's killing on sight. There's there's this driving them away, but there's also concentration camp and slave labor as an aspect of this genocide, right? Yes, this genocide is actually somewhat unique in as far as I know because it begins with um, large-scale killings and then evolves into labor camps. Um, it is one of the only genocides that I'm aware of that is stopped not by military intervention but by the perpetrator's own need for slave labor. It, there's a holo- there's a phenomena from the Holocaust where as the Nazis' need for labor fluctuated, the death rates for Jewish um, people uh, in Nazi-controlled territories fluctuated along with the need for labor. Um, so as the Nazis needed more labor, they murdered less Jews and vice versa. Um, what happened in Namibia was similar. The Herero and Nama had fulfilled many important roles in German Southwest Africa before the war. And so um, once the war had started, there was a dire labor shortage across all of German Southwest Africa. Um, even prior to the Battle of Waterberg, German settlers had been pressuring um, the military commanders to allocate Herero POWs to service slave labor. By the end of 1904, the labor shortage had grown so dire that the Germans decided to send missionaries out into the desert to offer the Herero a chance to surrender under the condition that they be placed into concentration camps. Due to the impossibility of surviving out in the Kalahari, especially while they were under pursuit, uh, constant pursuit by a superior military force, uh, many Herero groups took the German offer of surrender and agreed to be placed in concentration camps. As part of this surrender agreement, uh, the tribes also agreed to give all of the land that they owned to the crown. Um, most of it had already been confiscated, of course, and the imperial German government proceeded to transport uh, thousands of German settlers onto that land which they took over uh, the confiscated Herrero homes and the livestock that had not already been shot by the German military. I can't imagine it's good, but I want to hear about the conditions for the Herrero in these camps. At first, the Herrero's labor was monopolized by the government, but later they um, were rented out essentially to companies and to individual German settlers. Herrero labor was used to build government buildings, rail lines, cattle corrals, water pumps, um, and they were forced to work in industries ranging from shipping to brewing to herding. Um, When they were not outside the camps for labor, the Herrero were subjected to horrific living conditions, as you implied. Life expectancy in the camps was short enough that some of the camps issued pre-copied death certificates. Um, which read death by exhaustion following probation. And they just printed these for everyone that came into the camp. That way the surgeon could just write the names into however many they needed at the end of the day. The food was scarce in the camps. Uh, Starvation caused hundreds of deaths. Um, They were beaten routinely with clubs and hit with whips. Um, And then they were, the corpses were thrown into mass graves. The pre-recorded death certificates really surprised me. That is something I can't imagine just being passed out, this pre-recorded death. Like, we know you're going to die. We're just going to save ourselves some time down the road. Yeah, that was one of the worst things that came across in my research. 
And all of this sounds terrible, but I want you to talk about Shark Island, which had a 70% casualty rate. Yeah, um, so being sent to Shark Island, which was the name for the concentration camp at the German capital, which was a city known as Luderlitz, um, that was being sent there was known among the Herero as the worst fate possible. Um, the Germans selected the location to house the concentration camp, which was the largest of all of them, uh, because they could use it to supply labor to the colony capital. Um, also, the Herrera were not familiar with the island, which they believed would minimize the risk of uh, resistance at the camp. Um, the camp at Luderlitz was uh, known to have casualty rates as high as 70%, as you said, compared to another camp, uh, Swamp Command, um, which had 40%. The women, it was a primarily a women's camp. Um, they were starved and they were only able, um, there was one report said they were only able to eat the scraps that were thrown to them by passing British transport riders. Um, and then that same report said that when the German guards saw them eating those scraps, they started whipping them even just for eating those small scraps. Um, so most of that death was toll was from starvation. That same report also said that the prisoners were so desensitized to pain that they didn't even cry when they were whipped. What happens after 1908 when they get rid of the concentration camp system? So yeah, the um, concentration camps, um, I, I should have mentioned this earlier, they um, build um, quite a few of them across the country. They're all about as bad as I was just describing. Um, and they continue until 1908. Um, in 1908, the concentration camp system is abolished and um, the Herero, they are not given any of their land back. They um, are forced to move on to German um, land to work as forced laborers. All Herero over the age of seven are forced to carry metal discs around their necks um, to mark them as being Herero and um, they are obligated to serve free labor to German settlers, companies, or to the German government itself. Seven's like first um, grade age. Like seven years old is yeah. babies. Yeah, no, it's, and that's the age where they made them start doing free labor. So it was crazy. The Herrero lost all of their rights to their own land, to their cattle, to their own government, or to their own religion. Um, this remained the case through the end of the German colony um, in 1915 as part of the African campaign of World War I. The British colony of South Africa invaded German Southwest Africa and took it over. Um, Namibia remained part of South Africa until 1990. The Namibia, uh, the Herero and the Nama um, were subjected to decades of apartheid rule under South African control. And um, since independence in 1990, most of the Herero and the Nama still live in poverty. How does what the Germans did to the Herero differ from other imperial or colonial actions? So a lot of the factors that make the German actions against the Herero a genocide and not just the typical African colonial war of the 19th and 20th century um, are matters of scale and intent rather than the actual actions that they were doing themselves. Um, at this point in the 20th century, they were still differing international rules of war. 
depending on if you were fighting um, against another colonial power, typically another European power, or if you were fighting against a colonized people who were racialized and viewed as inherently inferior and therefore less deserving of basic human rights. That meant that execution of non-combatants and even the use of concentration camps was normal and done by most other colonial powers at a non-genocidal scale. Um, now that's not to say that no other uh, colonial powers were carrying out genocides. For example, um, the Belgian actions in the Congo at the same time were very genocidal. Right. But um, another, uh, but that is the difference. It's mainly scale and intent rather than what they were actually doing. Another important difference uh, with the uh, German colony in Namibia was that it was a settler colony rather than an extractive colony just meant to extract resources and wealth from the land. Um, it was meant to transplant German settlers onto most, if not all, of the land in German Southwest Africa. Then that is, of course, exactly what they did with the land they seized from the Herero and the Nama, is transplant German settlers onto it. Um, since Raphael Lemkin, but especially in more recent genocide studies, scholars have recognized settler colonialism as being inherently genocidal because the land is treated as being unoccupied and there for the taking by colonial settlers. However, it is, of course, actually occupied by the people that live there, and therefore the colonial forces must clear the previous occupants, which I think it's pretty obvious how that can turn into a genocide. Right. What surprised you the most when you were doing this research? It surprised me how open the Germans were with their desire to annihilate the Herero, um, especially with von Trotha. Um, I figured that I would have to like interpret their words a bit to get the dehumanizing intent, but um, instead he just openly came out and said the nation should be annihilated. Um, I was expecting, I wasn't really expecting them to be that direct, um, especially because I knew that there have been people that have questioned whether the Kaiser and the Berlin government knew about and ordered the genocide. Um, but, I mean, for my research, von Trotha met with the Kaiser before he traveled to Namibia, and he was already using that kind of language, so I don't think there's really much of a question there. Yeah, I I mean, you can't get much clearer than the nation should be annihilated. Yeah. It's, it's pretty clear. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> What's up next for you in terms of your research? Um, I actually have it kind of surprisingly light this semester for my first grad semester um, in terms of research projects, but for my history of science class, I'm focusing on medical cannibalism. Okay, so I'm going to have to just go ahead and pre-book you for next season for medical cannibalism because <laughs> I need to know more. So no pressure, but you have to do a really good job because I want to hear about it on the podcast. Yep, I'll do my best. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for joining me again today, Larry. Thank you for having me. I'm going to post a selected bibliography of sources from Larry's research at our website, victoryhistory.com, where you can subscribe to get notifications on all of our episodes. I would like to thank Nathan Weiss, FHSU music composition major, who composed our theme music. And as always, if you're interested in pursuing a degree in history at FHSU online or on campus, visit www.fhsu.edu history to learn more. Thanks for listening.